Angels, Death, and Eternal Life. This is On Life with Jamie Sinclair, episode 19. Well, hello there. Welcome. It is good to be back. Just one week, and we got another episode coming out. Hey, I want to talk about two questions. The latter came in specifically for the podcast. The former, somebody sent to me last week. They were just inquiring, and I thought, hey, this touches on some really interesting stuff, and I'd love to discuss it on the podcast. So here's the question. What's your opinion on us going to heaven and becoming angels? Do you think we become angels? Do we get wings? And if not, what do we become? How would we be different from angels? Okay. Well, thanks for the question. I like it. Uh, First, let's talk a little angelology, and then we'll talk about death, heaven, afterlife, and then we'll talk a little bit about what we become. So first, angelology. Um, That would be the theological field of the study of angels, and angels are created beings like us. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, we read that everything was created by him, that is Jesus. Everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. So the simple truth is this. We see angels throughout scriptures, the scriptures, and these are created beings. Um, we see uh, we see a, a class of being that's referred to as cherubim. Um, from the description in Exodus twenty-five, cherubim are, are like carved onto the Ark of the Covenant, and so we actually see them referenced a number of times. And in the description there for the the decoration, the cherubim have a set of wings. And from a a reference to cherubim in Ezekiel chapter 10, we also know that they have hands. Um, Furthermore, they're they're referenced a bunch of times, including in Genesis chapter 3. It's cherubim who are set at the Garden of Eden to guard it after Adam and Eve were driven out. We also see angelic creatures called seraphim. And if I'm remembering correctly, seraphim are referenced many fewer times, uh, but we get a great description of the seraphim in Isaiah chapter six, a uh, beautiful just vision of the throne room of God. And it describes the seraphim of, as having three sets of wings. Um, and then it, it talks about how they're ministering in the presence of God. Oh, and the sets of wings, let me pull this up real quick, lest I forget. They have the three sets of wings, two wings cover their faces two cover their feet, and with two they fly. And then we also see in that that one of the seraphim flew over and in his hand was a glowing coal. So they have feet, they have hands, they have six wings, and they're calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. It's this awesome picture. So we see cherubim, we see seraphim. Um, Angels are likely not male or female, since Jesus references them as an example of not being given in marriage. Um, In Genesis chapter 1, when God creates humanity, when he creates man, they're clearly male and female. But there's no reason to think that angels have sex. And in fact, there's reason to think they don't. Because when Jesus is answering a question, they they come to him to try to trip trip him up. And they ask him a question, hey, if somebody has a, a spouse and then their spouse dies and they remarry and then they die and they remarry again in you know, the afterlife and in heaven and the resurrection, to whom are they married? And Jesus's response is this, Matthew 22, verse 30. 
For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And so in this, he seems to be very clearly implying angels are not only not given in marriage, but that's not part of God's design for them. And so, uh, you know, what do we know about angels? Uh, Cherubim, seraphim, they would look quite out of this world. Um, But at times, angels appear to seem fairly human-like. For example, in Genesis chapter 19, we see a couple of angels visit Sodom before its destruction. Um, And in in Hebrews chapter 13, there's a reference to potentially hosting angels as guests without even knowing it. It's It's Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. And so in Genesis 19, Lot was hosting these these angels, and I there's no reason to think from that narrative that he knew they were angels, but simply that they were guests to host. In Hebrews 13, it seems to imply that, yeah, you could, you could interact with an angel without knowing it. Uh, is it that cherubim and seraphim are able to present themselves in a more typical human form? Maybe. Uh, or maybe there's another category of angels or, or categories of angelic beings who appear very much like men. It seems like they're always men in the accounts, although maybe women, they could present that way too. Uh, when they're kind of in physical presentation on planet earth, uh, we don't know the, the, Certainly the Bible doesn't answer every question we might have about this, but we see some clear things. We see seraphim, we see cherubim, we see angels who are walking amongst us, and we might not even be aware that they're angels here. Angels can manifest physically, but they can also manifest uh, spiritually and in our minds. For example, we know in Matthew chapter 1, an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream. And said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So we, we see uh, angels manifesting, and, and more than that, we see it in other dreams. I believe Mary had a dream. And we see these, these angelic visitations in dreams. We also see in Matthew chapter 4, after the temptation in the wilderness, uh, it says this in Matthew four eleven. Then the devil left him. And angels came and began to serve him. And certainly those could have been physically manifested or presented angels, but there's no reason to think that from the context that all of a sudden just a bunch of angels showed up physically. Who knows? It doesn't elaborate, but it does seem that angels can present physically, but they can also show up in a dream or in in some other spiritual manner. Um, so there are things visible and things invisible. Jesus has created all of it. And it seems that angels might kind of be able to go be- between the two. Okay, so now that we've done some very basic angelology, one could go a lot further, although it does seem, I'm not an expert, but it seems like angelology pretty quickly gets into a lot of speculation just because the Bible doesn't detail, you know, the various families or genuses of of angels and, and how all that works. But okay, the question was, do we become angels when we die? Um, before we answer that, though, we kind of need to ask more generally, what happens when we die? Um, after Jesus returns and judges all people, we will be with him 
for eternity. Those who have put their faith in Jesus and have been born again will be with him for eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. Talks about this in Revelation chapter one, and that is our ultimate state. But what about between when believers die and Jesus returns? You know, for thousands of years now, men and women of God have died in the hope of the resurrection, the hope of Jesus's return, but he hasn't returned yet. And this in between is referred to as the intermediate state. Now, there's a story that Jesus shares in Luke chapter 16 that may well be referring to this intermediate state. In Luke chapter 16, I'm going to read several verses here. It's the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tongue of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things, just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you, so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot. Neither can those from there cross over to us. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. End of the passage. So we see this this glimpse of uh, something that might be an intermediate state where uh, prior to Jesus's return, and the, the creation of the new heavens and the new earth and kind of a, a redeemed creation and us being with Jesus for eternity in that context, maybe there's some sort of intermediate state, Hades, where there's a, a place that some call paradise or Abraham's bosom, or in this translation, Abraham's side. Uh, and then those who die apart from faith in Jesus would, it seems like there's some sort of fiery torment. He talks about being in agony from the flame. And then those uh, like Lazarus, who, who died in faith, being in relative comfort. Um, now, I, I look at this story, and it's amongst a, a set of parables that Jesus is sharing. You have the parable of the lost sheep, like the shepherd leaving the 99 in Acts fi- Luke 15, excuse me. And you have the lost coin, and you have the... Uh, lost son, the prodigal son. And then you have the the parable of the unjust steward at the beginning of Luke 16. And then you have this parable. And generally when I'm reading parables, uh, when I'm studying parables, I myself, and I would encourage all of you to be careful not to read into mm, every little detail of the parable and try to find some sort of truth in it itself, but to ask what's the point, just like a, a, a joke. 
you know, if you read in overly read into every aspect of a joke, it's really funny. You have to kind of step back and like, what's the, what's the punchline? What's the point here? You know, you might have a, a joke about a talking elephant and I'm so unfunny. I can't even think of a joke right now, but if the, a, an elephant said something to a dog and you're like, wait, elephants can't talk. Like you missed it. Like you missed the joke. It's not about whether or not elephants can talk. It's about some funny punchline. And, and it's the same thing with parables. Um, there's one parable specifically that could be disastrous if we read into it. In Luke chapter 18 at the beginning, just a couple chapters after where we are right now, Jesus tells a parable. And the point is to encourage us to persevere in faithful prayer. And the parable is about a woman who needs justice and she basically harasses a judge until he finally relents and grants her justice just because he's tired of her uh, nagging at him. And, and the point of that parable is, may we persevere, just like that woman was perseverant to find justice, may we persevere in our prayers. But it would be horrible and absolutely incorrect for us to think of God as an unjust judge that we need to harass until he listens to us. No, God is a good father who wants what's best for us and is is present and active and for us and he's working all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes Romans 8:28 so uh, again reading into every aspect of a parable can not only lead us to incorrect conclusions sometimes but absolutely abhorrent conclusions and so when we look at the story of Lazarus and the rich man one of the things that, that's crucial is uh, to be careful not to necessarily read into every aspect of this. Maybe there are talking animals. Maybe there's a, an intermediate state that looks nothing like reality, but Jesus is making a point. And Jesus's point is, we have a witness, Moses and the prophets. We don't need people to come back from the dead to, to persuade us. We have the good news that there's life in Jesus. Let's preach it. Let's respond now before it's too late like the rich man who didn't respond, or potentially the rich man's brothers, who who knows if they respond. Jesus left that open-ended. So there's a point to this parable. Traditional Christian doctrine is that when we die, our physical material bodies perish and eventually you know, decay and turn back into dust. But there's an immaterial part of us, our, our, our soul, spirit, our being, and that immaterial part goes to Hades or the underworld or paradise or Abraham's bosom, whatever you want to call it. And, um, you know, in the, in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, part of Hades seems like it was full of torment and part was paradise. And so Christian, traditional Christian doctrine would hold to some sort of intermediate state like this. In Luke chapter 23, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, the thief next to him uh, basically embraces him as Messiah and says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus responds and says, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. And so some would read this as a, in that day, the thief was with Jesus in paradise. Of course, where you put the comma is pretty significant. And the Greek, by the way, does not have a comma for us to look at. So Jesus may have said, truly, I tell you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Or maybe he said, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. So, so it's, I wouldn't base much doctrine on this statement other than the thief was saved in that moment. Um, there's another theory that has a lot of merit to it. And in fact, although I don't think scripture is 
clear enough for me to die on this hill, I actually embraced this other theory, and it's called soul sleep. And the the doctrine essentially means that when we're dead, we are we're we're it's like we're asleep. We're just dead, awaiting a resurrection. And and of course, since uh, one doesn't sense time passing in a total sleep, it's like you perish, and the next instant you're. Uh, eyes are opening in the resurrection as Jesus returns and brings with him those who sleep in Jesus. Um, it, like I said, this is a this is a subject with a lot of scripture that one can look at, but it doesn't actually, in my opinion, end up being super clear. But what's really clear is this: the hope of the believer in death is that one day Jesus, who has defeated death, will come again, and those who are dead in Christ, or those who sleep in Jesus, will return with him. There's an awesome passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 speaking to this. We do not want you, this is uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13, by the way. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. End of passage. You know, in, in many traditional Christian contexts, and, and by traditional, I mean like of the traditional line of reasoning, but in the American context today that I've encountered, if someone said, oh, my, my mother who loves Jesus passed away last year, you know, is... Is she, is she lost or is she going to be with Jesus? Most Christians today would be like, oh, she's with Jesus right now. She's up in heaven. And while that might be true, the hope that the Bible gives when there were Christians who were grieving their lost fellow believers, the, the hope was not that they're in heaven with Jesus. The hope was Jesus died and rose again. And in the same way, Jesus is going to bring with him when he returns those who have fallen asleep. So I'd encourage you, look at that passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 again sometime, if this is a new concept to you. But either way, there's some sort of intermediate state, and whether it's a conscious state in paradise and Hades, or if it's soul sleep, there's we're dead waiting on a resurrection. We know this, as believers, when we die, we die in hope that regardless of what the intermediate state is, our eternal state is with Jesus and the new heavens and the new earth. Um, okay, so we've talked a little bit about what happens when we die and didn't necessarily settle on a clear answer, although personally I affirm soul sleep. Next, what do we become? Do we become like angels? Now, the, the Bible doesn't necessarily answer this question super fully, but it, it does speak to this question um, most obviously, and, and this is so obvious, it's almost not worth saying, but to be thorough, uh, what's clear is that we will put on immortality. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, Paul's speaking of the resurrection, and he says, What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. Now, he doesn't speak to, will we have wings? Will we be able to walk through walls? Will we need to eat food? He doesn't answer those kinds of questions, but clearly we will be immortal. Now, the Apostle John says this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Dear friends, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. He's basically saying, we don't really know precisely what we're going to be like in eternity or what it will be like, but Jesus is the first fruits of those risen from the dead and we will be like him and with him. And and the, the like him here isn't just like, physically, although certainly Jesus and his resurrected body is very much a good example of what we'll be like. But we're going we're gonna to know the Lord in a deeper, more fuller way, and we're just going to be able to enjoy growing in that and walking in that for all eternity. It's going to be mind-blowingly amazing. Sometimes people ask me, like, what's heaven going to be like? Uh, and I don't know the, the exact answer to that. Uh, some of the drawings, you know, you're just floating in clouds, playing harps, and, and those can be beautiful drawings or, or paintings. And they might capture something, but heaven is going to be a lot more like exploring planet Earth right now than floating in clouds with harps. But it's also going to be perfect. No more tears, no more pain, no more suffering. And it's going to be like the most glorious you can think of square. I mean, that's part of what you see in biblical accounts of of eternity. It's it's feasting with choice wines and meats. It's it's streets of gold. Will the streets actually be golden? I don't know. I I, I think the point is the streets are going to be mind-blowingly glorious and maybe they'll actually be golden or maybe something entirely unfamiliar to us, but it's going to be amazing is, is what those pictures capture. And we are going to know Jesus and we're going to be like him. Um, Jesus, after his resurrection, did eat some meals with the disciples. So it seems like we'll be able to eat. And uh, there there was one instance where it seems like he, he entered the room without needing to use the door. I don't know if that was just a Jesus miracle or if there's going to be something about our glorious bodies that will d- defy certain laws of physics that we're now familiar with. I, I don't know. It There is, are descriptions of feasting in heaven. I don't know if we'll need to eat or if we just will eat once in a while. Uh, I, I don't know answers to all those questions. Your question, though, is, will we become like angels? And I would say generally, no, we're going to be people. We're going to have a new song. We're going to be the redeemed ones. Um, it, the, the extent to which we will become like angels, I would, for now, leave to what Jesus said in Matthew 22, 30. For in the resurrection, they, will neither, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And so... We will not be given in marriage in heaven. And to that extent, we will be like the angels. But otherwise, I'm going to stop there for now because that's all that's biblically explicit.
There's one more aspect of this question. And again, the question didn't actually come in for the podcast, but I, I found it just interesting to think about and talk about. Um, will we be able to see our loved ones? And so this would certainly be a question specifically about the intermediate state. So between, uh, so say somebody passed away last week, between then and when Jesus returns, are they in some context where they can look down and see us? Uh, so yeah, this question immediately brings us to considering what is the intermediate state. Um, if soul sleep is correct, then we are not conscious during the intermediate state. So that's simple. If the traditional view is correct, that there is a conscious intermediate state, but it looks like the Lazarus and rich man scenario, no, they could see each other, but they couldn't see the rich man's five brothers. So that seems unlikely. There is one passage that comes to mind when I hear this question. So I do want to read that just to be honest with you all. Uh, but I, I don't think, I hold the soul sleep. So I think the answer is no. But in Hebrews chapter 11, there's this amazing, just like verse after verse kind of going through and, and celebrating just men and women of faith over the ages. And then at the beginning of Hebrews 12, we read this. Therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. End of passage. So he starts by talking about this, this large cloud of witnesses, these heroes of the faith throughout the, the eons. And, and one could read this and think, oh, these heroes of the faith, then if they're witnesses, they must be watching us. Almost like there, there's a, an amphitheater of heaven looking down onto the, the play of earth. Of course, if you start thinking about how this works, um, Certainly, even in our resurrected state, we are not going to be omnipresent. So could somebody be aware of what's happening in Richmond, Virginia, and Atlanta, Georgia, and Canton, China? Like, you know, you, you can't be everywhere at once. So I'm not sure how that would work anyways. Um, but in light of the fact that to the extent there is a conscious place, it probably looks like Lazarus and the rich man, which would not be them looking down on people. And in light of the fact that I actually think that the best interpretation, and maybe I'll make a case for it more fully some other time, is actually soul sleep. It, it's pretty clear then that Hebrews 12 is not referring to that. And what it really is, is in light of the, the, what these lives, these, the, the lives of these men and women of faith speak to and testify to, witness to, and in light of this, this body of, of, Believers throughout the ages, let's continue to run the race. Let's lay aside the, the hindrances and the sin that can ensnare us. And so that's really what this passage in Hebrews chapter 12 is speaking to. So hopefully that was interesting and answered the original question. One more question that did come in specifically for the podcast a few weeks back. Why is it that throughout the Bible, when an angel appears to someone, that person thinks they will die when an angel appears? Was that just a superstition at the time, or is there actual scripture that they were looking to that put that in their minds? All I could come up with is in Exodus 33:20, where God says, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. The only problem with that 
is an angel isn't God, only his messenger, unless Israel thought it applied to his angels as well. Great question. Thank you for submitting. So my, my first thought when I read this is I can think of some examples of this, but I can also very quickly think of sometimes this doesn't happen. For example, Abraham and Lot with the angels in Genesis you know, uh, I don't know, 15 through 19, that section, Joseph and Mary, uh, Zechariah, you know, in, in the, the birth accounts of, of John and Jesus. So there are plenty of times angels come to people or even the angel coming to Daniel in Daniel chapter 10, you know, where, where an angel brings a message and it might be somewhat awing to the person, but they don't, uh, they're not afraid they're going to die. And so there are moments where this happens, but it's definitely not consistent or universal. Um, why does it happen sometimes? Well, one reason maybe is just uh, sometimes when angels show up, either they themselves or the message they bring is glorious. Uh, you know, in Revelation chapter 22, towards the end of the revelation that John receives, a, an angel had been speaking, and this is what Ro John records in Revelation 22 verse 8. I, John, I'm the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had shown them to me. But he said, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you, your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. In Judges chapter 6, the angel of the Lord shows up to Gideon. And the children of Israel are being oppressed at this time by the Midianites. And, and the angel of the Lord comes to, to Gideon. And I just want to read a couple of verses. Verse 22, when Gideon realized that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Oh no, Lord God, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace to you. Do not be afraid, for you will not die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. So a couple of thoughts. One is, yes, this would be after the interaction between God and Moses and Exodus that, to which you referred in your question. So Gideon would have been aware that if somebody sees God, they'll die. Now, of course, as you know in your question, but he saw an angel of the Lord here. Well, two thoughts. The, the first one is Gideon actually wasn't the one who said, I think I'm going to die, although he may have been implying it. It was the Lord replying to him in verse 23, but the Lord said to him, peace to you. Don't be afraid for you will not die. So it was the Lord who said you will not die. But also note in verse 22, Gideon is interacting with the angel of the Lord. And in 23, it's the Lord saying to him. Uh, maybe that was just the angel replying, but also a possible explanation is this, that at times when we see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it is a theophany. And a theophany is a, a manifestation of God physically, tangibly. Like the burning bush would be like the presence of God being manifested to Moses. Or, well, possibly the angel of the Lord speaking to Gideon here in Judges chapter 6. Or, or here's another example, and I think this one's interesting in juxtaposition to the passage in Revelation 22 we just looked at with the Apostle John. So in Joshua 5, Joshua is, is you know, he's leading the children of Israel. They're beginning to conquer the Holy Land. And this is what we read. Joshua 5, verse 13. 
When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua approached him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. I have now come as commander of the Lord's army. Then Joshua bowed with his face to the ground in homage and asked him, What does my Lord want to say to his servant? The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did that. Now, it's not clear from this passage, but it seems that this would be a theophany, and the commander of the Lord's army may have been a uh, a, a revelation of God to Joshua. And theologians discuss this and debate. But here's one of the key things that, that's interesting to observe. Joshua bows with his face to the ground in obeisance and worship to pay homage to this man. And the man's reply is not, as we saw in Revelation 22, don't worship me, worship God. The reply is, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. When Gideon saw the angel of the Lord, he said, oh no, Lord God, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. In apparent fear, very possibly referencing that passage in Exodus where God said, if anyone sees me, they'll die. And it says in verse 23 of Judges 6, but the Lord said to him, peace to you, don't be afraid for you will not die. It's very possible what they're seeing is a, a theophany, a, a, a physical manifestation of the presence of God. And so your question is, why do people at times seem to think that if they see an angel, they're going to die? And, and the answer could just be that angels are impressive and bring impressive news at times, like John in Revelation 22 bowing to worship the angel. Uh, I don't know, it might have been even instinctual. I'm sure he knew he should only worship God. But there was just something amazing about this revelation, amazing about the appearance of the angel. But it could also be a real sense that this is God. This is God. And maybe it even was a theophany. It's, it's not necessarily perfectly clear, but it's very possibly an explanation. And I want to conclude on this thought. I want to talk about the glory of God. The glory of God. There, there is something glorious. And the word glory means like light, brilliant light. But it's not just like physical light. Although physical light can be helpful in conveying the idea. It is God is pure and powerful and and just beyond us and, and majestic, he's glorious. And there are two times in the New Testament where we see someone have an encounter with the risen Jesus Christ. The first time is in Acts chapter 9. Jesus shows up and encounters Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. And it says a bright light shone and he was knocked to his feet blinded and Jesus spoke to him. There was a glory that Jesus brought. And in Revelation chapter one, this is not 22 with the angel, but in Revelation chapter one, Jesus shows up and, and appears to John when he, when he gives him this revelation. And it, this is what we read in John cha Revelation chapter one, verse 12. Uh, let's start in verse nine. I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of the Lord 
because of the word of the Lord and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. Dressed in a robe, with a golden sash wrapped around his chest, the hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow. His eyes fell like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it, fi- as it, as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand, A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. And he continues on. But what's interesting is we see these revelations of Jesus, and in both cases, they fall. Saul falls to the ground blinded in his case. John falls to the ground by the grace of God. He has a clear vision of Jesus and and writes this description. Um, But there's something profound about the glory of God. It's just, it's awesome. And I'm excited. One day we are all going to see Jesus face to face. We're going to know him. We're going to be like him. And uh, man... The glory of the Lord is profound. Hey, that's a wrap for today's podcast. If you've got any topics or, or questions that you'd like me to discuss or try to answer here on the podcast, shoot me a message. The number for the podcast is 315-566-0056. Send a text there and I will get an email labeled for the podcast. I love hearing from you guys and I'm excited to continue this. Peace.